Well, Psalm 1 is uh, one of the most famous, most well-known, most loved chapters in the Bible. It begins the Psalter. It sets the course for the whole Psalter as well. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assemblies of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It speaks about the godly man stays away from sinners and draws near to the Word of God. And in so doing, he'll be like a firm and stable man. Unlike the wicked who are, are tossed here and there, he'll stand firm even in the day of judgment. And the psalm brings much counsel to us. Right company with the wicked will lead to ungodliness and instability, ultimately to destruction. But by reading and meditating and delighting upon God's Word, there will be life and prosperity in this life and in the life to come. A, a life lived in submission to the Lord and His ways will give you untold blessings. So I just say this, church family, make the Word of God your meditation. Think much on it. Read it. Memorize it. Know it. Love it. Sing about it. Think much on Jesus and Christ and the Gospel. Submit yourself to God's Word and your life will be blessed. doesn't mean everything's going to come hunky-dory in your life, right? Just good blessings. But in the end, you'll be the, the solid one to whom which all will turn and you will be Firm, and that's just a simple fact of life. But, but I want you to think about what Psalm 1 meant to the one who wrote it. Possibly David, we don't know. When he said, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, now he's not talking about meditating upon the life of Jesus. Jesus wouldn't come for another for several hundreds of years later. But David wrote this a thousand years later is when Jesus would come. The New Testament would follow after that. He's not talking about meditating on the Gospel, which was a, a mystery hidden in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New. What's he talking about? He says his delight is in the law of the Lord. What's the law? The law is the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's talking about delighting in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's talking about meditating on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know, Jesus, when He went out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, when He was tempted by the devil, you remember how He responded with three quotations? You remember where those quotations came from? They came from the law, from the book of Deuteronomy. He was meditating on them in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God and fear Him only. All from Deuteronomy. But here the man is blessed who meditates on these books of the Bible. And particularly for us today, right? as I've been preaching through Leviticus, I want us to focus upon the thought that 
The man is blessed who meditates upon the book of Leviticus. The man is blessed who loves the book of Leviticus. It's part of a law. You might say this way, blessed is the man whose delight is in Leviticus. And on Leviticus, he meditates day and night. And I just know that our time through Leviticus is profitable for your soul. And it's profitable for my soul. And I just say, meditating, thinking upon Leviticus will bring much blessing and stability to our life, especially as it points us and leads us to the cross. So let me pray and then we'll get into Leviticus. Father, I would pray this moment that you would be with us to teach us and to guide us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man cannot understand the things of the Word of God, for they are foolishness to him. They are spiritually discerned. And Father, so we, we long that Your Spirit would be in, indwelling us and teaching us and guiding us because, God, apart from Your Spirit, this book is cold and it is nothing. God, but with Your Spirit, it gives life and peace. And so, Lord, I pray for Your Spirit right now to grant us this life this peace, this love, this joy, this happiness. So come, come Spirit among us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open to Leviticus chapter 4. Now, in the past three weeks, we've looked at Leviticus 1, Leviticus 2, and Leviticus 3. The, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Right? The, the burnt offering was that was totally consumed before the Lord. Right, making atonement for sin. And the grain offering and the peace offering were that that followed afterwards often. As a, so read all the thanks to God for our atonement. As a, a response of, of knowing peace and fellowship and enjoying time with God and offering there. And this morning we come to uh, the sin offering. That offering that purifies us from our uncleanness. And, and how appropriate for us to talk about the sin offering you know, a great book that Jerry Bridges wrote. It's called Respectable Sins. I just want to read from the first chapter how he starts this book. or it's Actually, chapter 2. Um, but he's starting, he's starting the book talking about the disappearance of sin. He writes this. In 1973, the book Whatever Became of Sin, psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote, The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? And so this was 1973. This was 40 years ago. He wrote, to reinforce his observations, Dr. Menninger noted that in the presidential proclamation for the, nas- for the annual National Day of Prayer, the last time sin was mentioned was in President Eisenhower's proclamation in 1953. And those words were borrowed from a call to national prayer by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. So Dr. Manager observed that as a nation, we officially ceased from sinning some 20, and we might say some maybe 60 years from now, 1953 until today, 60 years ago. And, and Manager is by no means alone in this assessment. Art, author Peter Barnes, in an article entitled, What? Me a Sinner? wrote, In 20th century England, C.S. Lewis noted that the barrier that I have met is almost total absence from the minds of my audience is any sense of sin. And in 2001, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson commented that the most frustrating aspect of doing evangelism in universities is the fact that students generally have no idea of sin. They know how to sin well enough, 
but they have no idea what constitutes sin, Dia Carson says. These statements only confirm what seems clear to many observers. The whole idea of sin has virtually disappeared from our culture. And then he turns to the church. He says this, but what about our conservative evangelical churches? Has the idea of sin disappeared from us also? No, it has not disappeared, but it has in many instances been deflected to those outside our churches who commit flagrant sins such as abortion, homosexuality, and murder, or the notorious white-collar crimes of high-level corporate executives. It's easy for us to condemn those obvious sins while virtually ignoring our own sins of gossip and pride, envy, bitterness, lust, or even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. A pastor invited the men in his church to join him in a prayer meeting. Rather than praying about the spiritual needs of the church as he expected, all the men, without exception, prayed about the sins of the culture, primarily abortion and homosexuality. Finally, the pastor, dismayed over the apparent self-righteousness of the men, closed the the prayer meeting with the well-known prayer of the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So if anything you get from this message today, I pray there be just even a personal conviction of your own sin before the Lord. Because in order to offer a sin offering, you need to confess your sin, to confess the ways that you have sinned, sought the Lord, not the ways that our society has, has sinned. But we come here now to the sin offering. And, and if you look at the sin offering, you know we have a challenge before us. When I finished preaching uh, last week, um, Gage Weeby, how old's Gage? Maybe seventh grade? He's Oliver's age. How old is, how old is Gage, Michelle? Gage Weeby, 11. He's 11 years old. He came up to me. <laughs> Your brother. You should have known that. He said, uh, he's 10. He's 10 years old. He's in sixth grade. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So he came up to me and he said, oh, Mr. Brandon, you're going to have to preach two sermons next week or next time, next offering. Because he was just looking in his Bible and seeing how long Leviticus 4 is. And in fact, I told him, no, it's worse than that. Because the sin offering actually extends 13 verses into chapter 5. So we have a huge text before us today. In fact, if you would compare the size of the sin offering as compared to the, the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering, going into chapter 5, it's bigger than those first three offerings. And yet, I do want to read the entire sin offering for you. Just I'm figuring there are many of you maybe even never read through the book of Leviticus. At least one thing I can do as a pastor is at least let you hear it in your hearing. We're not going to do it all at once. We'll do it in sections as I've just let the sections kind of bring up the topics of what, what I want to talk about in here. But we'll read some portions here. We'll get through the whole thing. A lot of it should start feeling familiar because some of it is like the, the other offering. So let's begin here. Leviticus chapter 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord 
that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull and of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails and the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung and all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and he shall burn it up on fire on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in in front of the tent of meeting and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting and all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull of the sin offering. So he shall do with this and the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven and he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull in it is the sin offering for the assembly. All right, so let's just let's just stop there. We'll we'll we'll, We'll pick it up. I just want to say this, the sin offering has some of the characteristics of the other offering, right? The worshiper comes, brings an animal, presents it to the priest, lays his hand on the head of the animal, kills the animal. The priest then accepts this dead animal. The blood is poured out, dealt with at the base of the altar. The fat is burned on the altar. In fact, even look at verse 8 again. We see how similar, in fact, verse 10, we see how similar the burnt offering is, or the sin offering is, to the peace offering. And he explains what to do about the fat and the kidneys, and and then he gets down to verse 10. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. In in other words, just do the same things that you did in the peace offerings. And all these offerings are going to kind of build on each other. We build a foundation of these five offerings, and in the future, when you refer back to them, they always go back to these five chapters of how you should deal with the different offerings. But there are some things that are different about this offering. First of all, it comes, this is my first point this morning, in response to sin. In direct response to sin, there is a sin offering. Look there in verse 2. It says, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them. So in other words, you've got God's commands, God's law there, and you come along and you transgress those sins and unintentionally. We'll talk about that word later. All right. But if you if you transgress those sins, you need a sacrifice. And you should respond in sacrifice. If someone sins, and you should respond. Verse 13, same thing. If the whole congregation of Israel sins. Or verse 22. When a leader sins. Or verse 27. If any one of the common people sins. Chapter 5, verse 1. If if anyone sins. And listen, here is the big difference between the sin offering now, and similar to the guilt offering, than the first three offerings. The first three offerings... 
just more or less assumed sin and sacrifice. But this makes it explicit. Leviticus 1 in the burnt offering talked about how atonement would be made. But that kind of assumes that sin needed to be cleansed and needed to be purged and needed to be atoned for. And when we get to the grain and peace offering, we don't even see atonement used. Though offering and burning something up, the sacrifice motif was big enough in the land of Israel that there was at least an idea that here we're offering this to the Lord, we're, we're seeking to please Him. In fact, this idea of a pleasing aroma to the Lord occurs some eight times, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in the first three chapters. Um, just offering this up to the Lord, right? Maybe appeasing for our sin. There's some, some identification, but no mention of sin in those. But it's all an, an implication of sin. But here we see in chapter 4 a clear reference to sin. And, and, and the connection is clear. If you sin, you need a, a sacrifice. If you sin, you need a sacrifice. That is what the sin offering is teaching us. If you sin, you need a sacrifice. That was true in the days of Leviticus and that is every bit as true today. If you sin, you need a sacrifice. Because God can't simply overlook your sin like we can. You see, if someone sins against us, we can choose to overlook that. And what language do we say? We say, it's okay, I forgive you. And you promise, right, never to retaliate against that sin that was against you. But what have you done? You have just been merciful, which is good and commendable, but you have taken justice and thrown it out the window. Which is how you should act. That's what Jesus taught us to act. That's how Jesus did act. He's being nailed to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He was extending mercy and not justice at that point. But you need to remember, and that is God. God is one who extends mercy. But you need to remember that God is also a fully just God. In Daniel 4, it says all his ways are just. That means that God acts perfectly justly in all his ways. And there is a, there's a, there's a, a difficulty there. God is merciful enough just to pass over sin and to forgive it like we do, but his justice prohibits it because his justice demands that retribution be paid. And to merely overlook sin is to be unjust. That's because God, God is the judge. I mean, it's easy for us to overlook an offense but for a judge in the court of law, if he would overlook a defense of, say, a murderer or a rapist, and he'd say, oh, I'm going to show my mercy to you and I'm going to let you go free, right? There would be, the society would kick that judge out because he's being unjust. His job is to be just. And so likewise, God's job is to be just. He is a perfectly just God and he's merciful. And the difficulty is how do you put both these things together? Well, that's what Paul debated in Romans 3, 21 through 26. If we had time, we would, we would go there. Some have considered this the most important paragraph of the Bible, Romans 3, 21 through 26. And in it, Paul's debating, how could God just overlook the sins of the Old Testament because it was demonstrating He was not just? How could He overlook the sins of Abraham, Moses, or David, or Elijah, or Elisha, Ezra, or Nehemiah, or the many people? How could He just overlook them? How could He pass over them? And the conclusion he came to is only in the cross of Christ. Because it was in the cross of Christ that both justice and mercy met. God's love and God's wrath met at the cross. 
because He was just and that He punished Jesus, He was merciful that He punished Jesus in our place. See, Jesus died undeservingly. We deserve to die. He punished Jesus for us, thereby showing mercy to us and showing judgment to Jesus at the same time. That's how He can pass over these sins. That's how He can forgive sins. And that's why all these sacrifices in Leviticus point us so well to Jesus because they point to the ultimate sacrifice of what we need on the cross. Because these, these sins here can, can cover up, they can forgive sins, but, but they can't do everything. Because if you notice, these are for one sin. right? If, if anyone brings a sacrifice, it is for that sin alone. And so that sin alone is, is dealt with and forgiven. And we're going to see later that how often it speaks about how that sin is forgiven. It's forgiven. It is it's cleaned and wiped over. But the next time someone sins, there needs to be another sacrifice. And they didn't have enough bulls and rams and goats to offer up in Israel to cover all their sins. An Old Testament saint would know that, well, I'm bringing this animal, but that's, that's never enough. Right, when they bring the animal, they're right before the Lord, right? They get out of the sanctuary and they sin again. They're like, oh, I did it again. You know, we, we've, we've been playing this game at our house called the what game. And, okay, Steffi, could you please lose? It goes like this. It goes, Stephanie? Yeah. No, she won. We'll lose the game. Stephanie? What? Ah, you lost. Okay, if you say what, right? Anytime you say what. So you try to start going around your table maybe today and say, let's play the what game. And it's really hard, actually. And so we've learned that when I say Stephanie, Stephanie says, no, when you, when you, she says, Stephanie, huh? Or yes, or, and and it's very cute. Before David got skilled at this game, his mouth was running faster than his mind. And so we'd be playing this game. We'd say, what, you lose. And he'd go, oh, he did his head like that. And we'd say, David, what? Oh, and he was like this delayed reaction, but he, he, he could never quite control himself. And so likewise, we, as we worship the Lord, as we are forgiven, we bring our sacrifice. Yes, we're forgiven. And when we when we go out, someone says, hey, Steve, I say, what? Oh, I lost again. I say, and I got to bring another. I don't have enough wealth. I don't have enough enough goats and sheep in my herd to be able to solve that problem. But the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't just for one sin. The sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient for the sin of the world. That's why Paul boasted in Colossians 2 that Jesus Christ has forgiven us all our trespasses. And it only makes sense, right? An animal is worth some and so can forgive some. But Jesus is worth infinite and so Jesus can forgive infinite. He can take away the sin of the world as John the Baptist told us. It wasn't just one particular sin for which Jesus died. Jesus died for many, many, many sins. In fact, He died for many, many, many of those sins that God overlooked in the Old Testament, never even having a sacrifice for those sins in the Old Testament. That in Jesus Christ, those sins were punished on the cross. And all the sins that you commit as you believe and trust in Jesus are forgiven at the cross of Christ as well. Let's just be thankful to God for that. The sin offering is given in response to sin. Second, the sin offering is given for various people. Various people in different, um, in different classes, in different modes. Did you notice that? It began, if anyone sins, in chapter 4, verse 2, and, and then speaks about the priest, verse 3, and then speaks about the whole congregation, verse 13, and now here in verse 22, it speaks about a leader who sins. Okay, let's pick it up. We're going to read now and, and just uh, look here, the leader. 
In fact, the organizational thread through Leviticus 4 is based upon people who are sinning and what to do in response to them, rather than, say, the peace offering or the, the burnt offering, right, was for the, uh, an ox or from the flock or two turtle doves or two pigeons, right? What is offered? And so likewise, the, the peace offering is what is offered. But here it's who sinned is the category in which they are here. So just listen for them. Verse 22. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any of the things that by the commandment of the Lord God ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which we looked at last week. So the priest shall make atonement for him and for his sin he shall be forgiven. By the way, to offer the sacrifice for the peace offering, this fat would be offered and then the food would be eaten by the priests. This is a, another way of, of providing for the priests. Verse 27, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin, which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. Right? And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. And again, right, that, that isn't burned, he got to eat. Now, that is in contrast, and I'm just kind of interrupting here. It's in contrast to the priest. When the priest himself sins, he brings a sacrifice. He doesn't get to eat of that sacrifice because he can't benefit from his own sin. That is all burned. But if it's coming from other people, he can eat the, eat the portion that is not burned. The fat is burned. Okay, verse 32, let's continue on. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a, a female without blemish. And lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. And then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, and all its fat he shall remove as the fat of a lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven." All right, so we see four different scenarios here in chapter 4. We see the anointed priest, verse 3. We see the whole congregation, verse 13. We see a leader, verse 22. And we see one of the common people in verse 27. And for the various people who sin, different things are happening here. If it's the anointed priest who sins, a bull must be offered. Not a cheaper lamb or goat. Must be a bull. Must be brought into the tent of meaning sprinkled seven times in front of the veil of the sanctuary. You see that in verse 6. Dip his finger in the blood seven times for the Lord. One, two, three, four, five, 
6, 7. Now, this will come up again in Leviticus 16. We look at the Day of Atonement. This, this sprinkling, the blood, will come up again. And then he must put the blood on the horns of the altar of incense. Um, now, we've not seen this yet. The, the burnt offering, grain offering, and peace offering were all dealt with outside the camp. Remember, can we go to the slide there, Rich, please? Um, when we started uh, Leviticus, we, we looked at this slide, and there's the entrance. This is, by the way, what I showed the kids, but I, I kind of unmoved the veil. But we had the, the tabernacle there. You entered into the gate, and immediately there was a bronze altar. That's where all the sacrifice have taken place up to this point. There's a bronze labor filled with water for washings. And then there was the covering in that's what's called the holy place. Now, for the first three offerings, they're all taking place at the bronze altar. But for this offering, when it's the priest or when it's the congregation, we'll see it's the same thing. They go into the tent of meeting. I got another slide, which is pretty neat. I, I made the walls. I didn't make the walls, but I, they're, they're uh, translucent, transparent. So now we can see into the tent of meeting. And this is what I show in the kids on that model. We have the lampstand. The table of showbread, I'm not sure why it's so small, it shouldn't be that small, but the table of showbread, they're kind of on the right, and then the altar of incense. Behind that second veil, that's the Holy of Holies, that's the Ark of the Covenant, which the high priest went in only once a year. You lift that up, and there's where the, the tables of the covenant, and Aaron's rather butted, and uh, a jar of manna was right there. But the priest would, at this point, bring blood from the sacrifice, which he sacrificed outside. He'd bring the blood, and he'd sprinkle it there seven times, right before the tent of meeting, right, right there, right below that tent. And then he'd take the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The horns are the, like you can see it over here on the burnt offering, they're like these, woo, things off of that. There's some things like that on the altar of incense as well. And he would put um, the blood there, right before the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, he would put the blood right there on that altar. Same thing takes place. The whole congregation um, does. And it comes in. He, he takes the blood. He sprinkles it four times. You can just read verse 17. Seven times before the veil. Now something different happens when a, a male, when, it, when a leader sins. Okay, it's sacrifice. isn't the bull. It's a small goat. It's a male goat, um, which you can read there. Let's see. I can't. It, in verse 23, there's a goat. And the sacrifice takes place all outside the bronze altar. And then when a common person sins, it's a female goat, in verse 28, or a lamb in verse 32. And again, the sacrifice all takes outside. So you say, what's the difference? Well, I think it's got to do with access to the Lord. It's why they're approaching even the veil. When the Shekinah glory came down and God dwelt with the people, He dwelt right there on the mercy seat. That beyond that, where only once a year could you ever go in to that place. And if you're taking your, your, uh, your blood and just pouring it out there, it just shows you're, you're coming as close as you can to God. Because, think about it, if the priest sins, how are you going to get to God? How are you going to get there if the priest sins? He is your path to get to God. He's the one that offers sacrifices for you, but a priest must be holy. And if your representative has sinned, he's no longer worthy to bring anything before the Lord. He needs atonement for his own sins. And so I think that's what that represents. Is he's going right before you, the, 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 the tent of meeting. You need, you need to get to the Lord. Or what about when the whole congregation sins? How are you going to get to God? Everybody is defiled. Well, again, we've got to go. right? We're going to go representative of all the people as the elders have laid their hands on the bull 
and the priest is going to go on behalf of all the people because all the people have done something wrong. You say, well, well, how can that be the, all the people doing something wrong? Well, this is this is national revival we're talking about here. Uh, this is a little bit equivalent to what, what I might say is going on now in the sports world with Ray Rice and the domestic abuse. It's like for years, domestic abuse has happened in the NFL. You get these testosterone guys and they're, you know, brutal their wives and brutal their kids and all this kind of been overlooked. But for some reason, Ray Rice or this video now, all of a sudden attention's being paid to this domestic violence. And it's almost as if the world is realizing, oh, we've missed this. And, and it would, in the Old Testament times, it would be like, bring, oh, we have sinned and bringing, bringing the blow. We have overlooked this and we ought not to overlook that anymore. We need to stand up for children so they're not abused and they're not beaten and for wives and domestic violence. We need to go before the Lord. And that's, that's an amazing thing that's taking place in our society. A wonderful thing. And there might be other things which our society repents of. Right? When eyes are open with abortion, just say, wow, we're same-sex marriage, right? And their eyes are open and we say, wow, we as a nation... I don't know if we'll ever get there, but this would be what happened with the people of Israel, say in the time of Hezekiah, when the book had been lost and been found. It says, oh, we need to keep the Passover. Oh, we've sinned. They would bring a congregational sin offering before the Lord so as to make the congregation right then again before the Lord. This is national repentance was happening, but things need to be right because all are culpable. All are guilty. But the issue is we need to get to God. And if we're all guilty, we need something to get us right to the throne of God, right to the place of God. If the priest has sinned, we need to get right to the place of God so that we can, we can approach Him again. But see, it's different when a local leader sins because then it's only a few and, a, and the priest still has access to God so he can offer outside the camp. He doesn't have to go inside the camp on his own behalf. Or if a common person sins, right? Just, just when everybody else can worship around him, but that person got to deal with that. But the priest still has a channel to God, but it's when the priest's channel with God is cut off that he's coming with blood in order to approach the Lord. And the significance here is, is Hebrews 7. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus, is our pure priest. He has forever access to God. He never sinned. He never will sin. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? Waiting and, and, and bringing us to God, being the mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.4. And he never has to enter the sanctuary to cleanse himself. He never needs to make this offering here of Leviticus 4, 1 through 12, because he never sinned. And he's right there, and it really gets better yet. Now he's Jesus sitting there at the right hand of God. He's also sitting there praying and interceding for his people. Hebrews seven twenty five. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, to save forever those who draw near to God. Through Him, because He always lives to make intercession for them. The job of Jesus is always to pray for His people to bring Him there because He is the Holy Priest who is there and can always bring us to God. So I say, church family, come to Christ. Come to Jesus. He's your only access to God. Whereas this priest, when he sinned, had to offer something. Jesus, having offered Himself once for sins, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Don't ever take that for granted. Uh, but I, I think we do. I, th- I think we do take this for granted. I mean, think about what if we didn't have a high priest? Can you imagine the Israelites' disappointment when they came to worship only to realize the high priest had sinned and he was taking care of his sin by sacrificing this bull and bringing it in and, and flicking this blood seven times for the altar? Like, maybe on the tent, right outside in that other, in that other picture, right outside the tent of meeting, there's this, this sign 
that says, do not enter, access prohibited, pre-sinned, is making atonement for his sin so as to be able to bring us to God. Come back in two hours. Or maybe to, to put it in modern day scenario, can you imagine coming to church? Only have a sign outside front that says, do not enter, access prohibited, the pastor sinned, he's offering his sacrifice, come back at noon. We're like, doors are open, <laughs> we're coming. Because we never have that problem. Our great high priest never sins and never prevents us from entering the presence of God. So just praise the Lord, we have Jesus, right? But before we move on, I also want to put one more thing out here. Just the principle of influence. I think the anointed priest, we're talking about the high priest, the one, when he sins, he represents the whole congregation and, and causes trouble for the whole congregation. For an anointed priest to sin, there's greater sin than if a, a local leader sins or if a common person sins, simply because it impacts more people. Think about when the President of the United States sins. It impacts us all in this nation. But if a mayor sins, it impacts the city. And so this high priest over everything impacts more. And, and I just say this, that when a spiritual leader falls, the, the impact is more or less depending upon the size of his influence. If you have a pastor of a multi-site multi-whatever, church, thousands of people come in every Sunday. He's just figurehead on a screen someplace. His fall will affect far more than a, a pastor pastoring a church of 40 people. See, it's the idea of influence. And, and Satan knows this. He's going after spiritual leaders. He's going after influential spiritual leaders. So you pray for your, for your influential spiritual leader and just say, God, keep him pure. God, protect him from Satan. They'll come strong and hard after pastors. That's why James brings a warning. Let not many of you be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged by a greater strictness because those who teach the Word have a greater accountability to live by the Word. That's why Paul admonishes, don't be hasty in laying hands on any. Just don't be quick about it because, because sin and the leadership will affect many people. In other words, sinful leaders big, bring big troubles to their congregations. Right? You might just be thinking, okay, leaders in a church, okay, got it. But parents, I want you all to think about yourselves as spiritual leaders. You may not have a church of a hundred, but you have a little church of three or four or five or six or eight. And your spiritual well-being will have a direct impact upon your little church at home. Your aim, think about it, your aim in raising children is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Your aim is to, to bring those little children to Christ. And how many parents have negatively impacted their children because of their sin? Your children will do what you do, not what you say. And how many parents did one thing, said another. The kids didn't follow what they said, they followed what they did. the principle of influence and how many parents have actually prohibited their children to come because they were never right with God in the first place. A sinful priest can't bring people to God nor can a sinful parent lead his little children to God. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. You, you know what I'm talking about. But, but know, that, know that there's a principle of influence there. All right, well, let's move on. The sin offering is given in response to sin, secondly, for various people, and now for various sins. Now we're getting to this point unintentionally. 
Okay, until this point, we've just seen unintentional sins. In fact, every single time we've seen unintentional, unintentional, unintentional. Let's read chapter 5, and then we'll come back to the unintentional sins. Chapter 5, 1 through 13. And here we're going to see different sorts of sins. All right? If, someone, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of an unclean swarming things, and it's hidden from him and he's become unclean, he realizes guilt. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one may become unclean and it's hidden from him and he comes to know it and realizes guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes guilt of any of these, and when he realizes guilt in any of these and confesses his sin that he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for that sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him and for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb... And he shall bring it to the Lord as his compensation for that sin that he has committed. Two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for a sin offering. And he shall wring its head on the neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him and the sin which he has committed and he ha- shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it's a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as his memorial portion and burn it on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. So I hope you start seeing all these things beginning to tie together here a little bit. Let's talk about unconventional sins. Four times in chapter 4, verse 2, verse 13, verse 22, and verse 27. And all the major translations, be that ESV, NASB, King James, New King James, not the King James, translate a little bit differently, but uh, the, New, the New International Version, they all translate this sins unintentionally. It's, it's easy to get a misconception as to what, what this means. I mean, we think about unintentional, we think about something in which we have no control at all. And therefore, with no control, we're not responsible. Like, like for instance, you know, I, I snore at night. Okay, I know some of you men might, might join me. Some of you women might join me in that. If so, you can keep your hands down. It's kind of a manly thing to snore, I guess. But I snore badly. All right? In fact, Andy Krauss... One time we uh, went up to Minneapolis to the Desiring God Pastors Conference and um, we're there, we're sharing a hotel room together. And um, here, here's, here's the way he used to describe my snoring. He says, you know, a lot of times when people are snoring and uh, they're sleeping, they use the metaphor about cutting logs, right? Sawing logs. He said, Steve, when you were snoring last night, you were using a chainsaw to cut that tree down. Kind of what, what he said. My snoring is loud. But you know what? It's, it's uncontrollable. It's not like I go to bed at night and say, okay, I'm going to snore up a storm. See how loud I can get this guy tonight. Um, 
In fact, it's it's bad. I've been to doctors a little bit. I've checked. I've, I've taken a um, what do you call that? Some kind of test, uh, a sleep study. I, I did that one time, and and what happens is that my my mouth is filled with this guck and muck and whatever my stomach stuff that it kind of closes off my airway. And I took the study, and one time um, I didn't breathe for like a minute and a half <clears throat> until I I opened up. And so that's that's one of my my problems. That's bad ultimately for my heart, so I've sought to do things. I wear something on my mouth each night to just try to open that up and, and clear it up. We can talk about that. But I used to have, before I wore this thing, I used to have dreams of drowning. Okay, I don't have those dreams anymore. <laughs> okay, um, But anyway, Avon, when I'm doing that, she'll, she'll bump me and, and kind of as I stir, then I get in a different position. I don't snore so much. And uh, she told me the other morning how she bumped me on several, uh, several times. This is like Thursday night maybe, Friday night. I forget what it was. You're not feeling well, kind of sick a little bit, bumped me several times. And, and uh, finally, she bumped me enough that my chainsaw was, was smaller. Now, you can feel sorry for Yvonne, please, because she wears, she wears earplugs just to keep them away, the sound away. But sometimes it's, I say all that to say this. I wake up in the morning and she says, oh, you were snoring like crazy last night. And I says, I was? I didn't know I was. I can't, I can't control that. That's not what's being talked about, this unintentional sin. Right? We might think it, but it's not. What's being talked about as unintentional sin is, is more like a sin that you just fall into or a sin of just going astray. Meaning you didn't think about it beforehand. You didn't, didn't plan it out. It was a situation you responded to and you responded sinfully. You sinned in your weakness as opposed to sinning in high-handed rebellion. That's just unintentional sin as opposed to intentional. Intentional sin would be you're thinking about it beforehand, you're, you're premeditating upon it, and then you're just going to go and, and grab your sin. But this is something more that you fall into. Now, there is, is some sense where um, you're, you're out of control a little bit. You can't, you know, you're, you're not intentionally doing it. But the, these are sacrifices, meaning that you are guilty for these sins. So there's something that you have done that makes you become guilty in these sins that you've stumbled upon. So I just thought about what are some of these sins. Took the Ten Commandments and just started thinking about it. You should have no other gods before me, right? Before no idol, bend the knee. Maybe it's going after bales of a land. Right? So it's maybe, maybe you like, like pursuing these things and not even realizing so much. Just there's, a, there's a bale in front of you like foot bale or base bale or basket bale and you just happen to be pursuing the bales of our society. Or maybe do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The third commandment. Maybe it's maybe something happens. You know, you you bang your thumb and out comes God's name and you've just blasphemed God and it's just kind of more of a response in your weakness. You weren't prepared. It's it's not like you planned. Okay, I'm going to smash my thumb and then I'm going to blaspheme God. No, it's just things that that happened. Or, or maybe it's like not being forward the truth. Like someone brings a confrontation. Right? Do not bear false witness against a neighbor. Right? Uh, commandment number nine. And, and, and you hear that and you just respond wrongly. And afterwards you're like, oh, why did I say that? I should have just been on it. It's not like you planned on being deceitful. Or maybe it's seeing something in coveting. Right? You happen to buy something, you look around and no one's, no one's got it. And, and, and then maybe you just you, you pick it up and you take it. It's not like you were going out and planning to find that thing and planning to take it and steal. It's coveting in your heart. You didn't plan on coveting ahead of time. These are the things that... The offering for sin is included. Now, chapter 5 includes some more things. Not speaking up as a witness, verse 1, or touching a carcass of an animal, verse 2, or touching a human uncleanness, or failing to keep an oath, or making a rash oath. 
Those are some sins. Of course, then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount took these sins of the Ten Commandments even and beyond and just brought them to a different level, which the Jews really knew a little bit about, but not a lot, right? It's not simply murder, but angry words that come from your mouth be an unintentional sin. Not just physical adultery, but even the thought is sin, right? Seeing an image and then reflecting upon sinning in your thoughts. Or taking vengeance into your own hand. The sin that Jesus is saying, right? Or failure to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, there, there's kind of an unintentional sin it's talking about in your weakness. And anything being less than perfect, Jesus says, is sin. And these are the kind of unintentional sins he's talking about. These are the kind of sins in which you can come before the Lord. That They're not high-handed Acts of rebellion against the Lord. And I'll just say this. I began my message talking about uh, Jerry Bridges' um, respectable sins. And maybe there's some sins in your life that are are habitual. Um, Maybe some words come out of your mouth that you need to change. Maybe some actions that you need to to change. Maybe I'm just praying right now that the Lord would convict you of your own sins I mean, after all, if we go right to the next slide, right? This is Leviticus, right? It's you shall be holy. Isn't this what we want? We want to be a holy people. Isn't this what what I say Leviticus should bring us to is to a holiness? So here's some respectable sins that that um, Jerry Bridges puts in in his book that we can just kind of do and not realize it's such a bad thing. That's the whole idea of unintentional. We just kind of do it and it is not. And then we reflect, we're like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that's wrong. That is, that is sinful. And, and he lists, in his chapters, he goes through in this book, he lists ungodliness, anxiety, frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, Anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue, flat out worldliness. You're thinking about just maybe this would be a good book to to purchase and go through and just says, what about these sins which sin offering needs to be made? What, What do I need to really think about that? Do I need to? Make efforts. Do I need to trust the Lord and His His sovereign goodness to let His Spirit work in me and and see His fruit working in my life? Because these sin offerings, every sin offering needs a sacrifice. And every single one of these respectable sins, though we might just as a church just kind of bluff those over. Oh, it's okay. Being anxious, it's okay to be anxious. We don't know the future. We're all anxious. No, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Or, or you know, I, I can understand your anger. I mean, that really provoked you. No. <laughs> Unless it's righteous anger, which 99% of anger is not righteous anger. It's all selfish anger. Unless it's righteous anger, um, it's wrong. Or a jealousy. You're, oh, it's okay. It's okay to envy those people that, that have this or that. It, no, there's no place for envy. And may the Lord grant us just... Vision to see, understanding to see these unintentional sins in our lives that we're maybe not even aware of that will bring us to a, a holy walk. These are our sin offerings. 
Now, now there is a provision in, in the law in some regards. It's not, it's not every specific sin that's offered because Israel at times had, had just generic sin offerings offered every month as part of the burnt offering. They had a sin offering there as well, just kind of atoning for our sins. And also at the yearly festivals, Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, they all, they all brought their sin offerings as well. And these, these sin offerings as well, also, this sin, it kind of can be a deceitful word as well because there are other places where sin offering is used just to describe ceremonial uncleanness, right? That we can't approach God because there's something unclean in us that's not necessarily sin. So say, for instance, after a birth of a child. It's what chapter 5 is talking about, um, about verse 3, touching human uncleanness, right? There's just a lot of blood in that, and, and that's human uncleanness. So before you would go to the Lord, you need to offer a sin offering, a, a cleansing offering, which maybe is where we're getting at with the idea of the sin offering. You need to be, be cleansed before you come in. Remember, Jesus was presented into the temple, Mary and Joseph, and what did they do? They offered up two turtle doves and two pigeons because they couldn't afford the lamb. And they were bringing their sin offering for the Lord, not for the sin of Jesus, not for the sin of Mary, but just this, we were unclean. And, and there are times where even cleansing a leper, right? You, you, you need to come just to cleanse this leper, even if it's not a specific sin. He was unclean ceremonially. He needs to come now clean before the Lord. Or, or bodily discharge of some type. It just makes you unclean. It's not necessarily sin. It just makes you unclean. And so the sin offering is a is a forgiveness thing because we're dirty in our, in our sin, but it's also this cleansing idea. In fact, that's my last point. The sin offering is given in response to sin for various people, for various sins, and for cleansing. In fact, that's probably the best over idea, overall idea about the sin offering. It's sin has stained us and we need cleansed and so we can worship the Lord in holiness and purity. And the sin offering is a restorative sort of offering. In fact, that's the idea. Look at how often it restores us to the Lord. Verse 20. And the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. Right? The idea is clean, cleansed, forgiven. Yes, I can come to God. Chapter 4, verse 26. So the priest shall make atonement for him and his sin and he shall be forgiven. Clean, cleansed, atoned, made right with God. I can come and worship God because I'm clean now. And that same idea, right? The, the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Chapter 4, verse 31. Chapter 4, verse 35. And the priest shall make atonement for him and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven. Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 13. The priest makes atonement for him and that sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. Or that uncleanness. He'll be, he'll be clean, able to enter God. Because we can't enter the Lord's presence without being clean. Psalm 15, Psalm 24, right? Psalm 24, verse 3, I think. Who can approach the holy hill of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? Only when God has cleansed us can we come and worship the Lord. Because when we sin, listen, we, we break fellowship with God. We have need to be cleansed. We have need to be restored. And the sin offering restores us by washing us, forgiving us, cleansing us. Remember in, in um, Isaiah chapter 1? When God says to the people, Israel, sinful people, He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The promise is, yes, we're dirty in our sin, but God, we just come to Him through the blood of Jesus and we are washed and made clean and made whole and we can enter into His presence and worship Him. It's the promise of the sin offering. 
We're polluted in our sin. He gives the cleansing only He can give. So we're washed and we're forgiven. We're made right. In the New Testament, 1 John 1.9 says it this way, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today, we don't need to bring our animals because our Christ has been crucified for us. We simply need to acknowledge His sacrifice and lay our figurative hand upon our sacrifice. Remember in all these sacrifices when the, 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 the worshiper would come present the animal to the priest, he'd always lay his hand on the animal. In some sense, transferring my guilt to this animal. some sense, identifying with this animal. some sense, just being at one with this animal. And then giving it to the priest. And so, Andy, I just ask you, have you laid your hand on Christ? Has Christ become your representative? Was, Was his death for your death? Have you put your metaphorical hand on the head of Jesus who died in your place? Because that's what it takes to be righteous and holy and to have this sin offering applied to you as Jesus died for those who would believe. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for church family here. Uh, I pray perhaps for those who have never believed. Lord, I pray that you would quicken their heart. The Holy Spirit would blow. God, to change them from being dead to being made alive. God, being born again. I I pray, God, that you would cause them to be born again. I pray you open their eyes that they would not be natural men, but spiritual men who can discern the truths of the things of God. Father, may you open the ears. May you open the eyes. God, come, Lord Jesus. God, convict us all of sin. Maybe there are us who are walking with the Lord, but God, they're just things in our lives. God, maybe it's been pricked and provoked. We think about sin offering. We think about sin out there, the horrible sin. We neglect the sin in our hearts. As Jerry Bridges began telling of that pastor, I pray, Lord, that we would be like the, the publican who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. For it's he that went down to his house justified and not the arrogant, righteous Pharisee. So God, create in us a church that's humble, that's submissive to you in every way. May these not just be words, platitudes said on Sunday morning, but may they deeply penetrate our hearts. God, that this afternoon as we deal with our family, as we go to work on Monday, as we deal with the trials and pressures of life, may we, we walk through them in a sanctified, pure, and holy way. It's the end of Leviticus. God, I pray that you would make us into be a holy people. Thank you that we can do that through Jesus, that you can cleanse us and make us righteous. Help us, O Lord, in our weaknesses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.